You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful even for those two short verses. Might you show us yourself and show us Christ tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. That was a short one. That's all right. We had some long ones in Ecclesiastes. if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, love to get to know you this week over a cup of coffee or a lunch or something. So come and find me after. I'd love to meet you, shake your hand, and get to know you. If you've known me for any amount of time, uh, maybe even perhaps in just like a 10 or 15 minute conversation, uh, you'll know that I'll pretty quickly ask you where you're from. Uh, it's not like some like mental checklist that I'm working through. This is question one and question two and question three and four and five that I ask of someone. I'm just genuinely and actually really interested to know where you're from. Uh, I think you can learn a lot about a person when you know where they're from. Like, did you grow up here? Did you not grow up from, up, from here? Uh, there's certainly not everything, but I think uh, there might be a lot that might inform me in knowing who you are by knowing what part of the country you're from. Did you grow up in the big city? Did you grow up in the suburbs? Did you grow up in rural, rural America? Like, this is really formative stuff. But also, a, a next question that I might ask you is, did, did you grow up growing, going to a church? If not, wow, like, great. How did you end up here in this strange gathering of Christians where we're, like, singing songs to someone we don't see and stuff? Like, it, How did that strike you? Was that odd? I had imagined it would be. Uh, Or if you did grow up going to a church, like what kind of church? Was it part of a denomination? What what did you think about that church growing up? What traditions did you have that you still keep or that you don't keep? Most churches vary in a lot of different ways. Even within denominations who share the same theology, there can be different philosophies. There can be different um, methods, points of emphasis. Like, shoot, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we are like the strangest Southern Baptist church in existence, uh, at least in this state. And that's totally fine. There are many churches in Albuquerque, even outside our denomination, that are close friends, that we consider partners, that we work alongside together. Sister churches whom we join in with on the same efforts You'll find differences in these churches. You'll find differences in Sunday services during what we do throughout the week. Perhaps even differences in a statement of faith. But we agree and we find unity in the essentials of the gospel. While I may disagree with some of these other churches and minor bits of doctrine, I can at least understand why they've arrived at why they have because they have as best they could, tried to work through what the scriptures are teaching them, and they've just come to a different conclusion. But are there ever close-handed issues? Well, there might be some issues that are a bit more open-handed, a bit more, let's just agree to disagree. Are there some issues which can become more close-handed, like pieces of doctrine, pieces of theology or practice that can be outside of the bounds of historic and orthodox Christianity? That is, is there something or 
big things that if an individual or collectively as a church or even collectively as a denomination, that if they were to embrace that or deny some other thing that would make them, well, actually not Christian. I think, yes, that can be the case. And not because, like, I get to be, like, the ultimate arbiter of who is a Christian and who is not, or something like that. But because God's Word does. What we're talking about here isn't just a modern dilemma, like, I don't know, something that happened in, like, the late 60s or something, where people got a little loosey-goosey and a little crazy, and uh, the church kind of started going weird or something. No, like, false teaching, doctrine, that is not according to the scriptures has always been creeping into the church. And doctrine, right teaching, has always mattered. 1 Timothy is one of two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy. And it is one of three letters, along with Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, that people will often refer to as the pastoral epistles. Epistles is just a fancy word for letter. Like, seriously, have you ever heard someone ever use the word epistle outside of a church? I don't think so. Uh, maybe we can, like, make a, uh, a Christian email service, and we can call it epistle. And uh, you, can, you can read and answer your epistle as you freshen your breath with your testaments. Uh, anyway, these pastoral epistles from Paul are different than all the other letters of Paul, We call them pastoral epistles because Paul is writing to a pastor. He's not writing to a church. All of these other letters, he was writing to a church that was found in Galatia or in Philippi or in Rome. So we call these books of the Bible Galatians and Philippians and Romans because this is to a church in that city. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus were letters from Paul to individual men, encouraging them to lead in specific ways, confronting specific problems, and even specific people. And while this letter is written to a specific person, after all, Paul addresses some things that he's very clearly addressing clearly to Timothy, like he's going to tell him later in the book to, hey, don't forget, I know you've got some stomach problems. We don't know what those are, some digestive problem or something that uh, Timothy has that Paul knows about. And he's like, so don't forget to drink a little bit of wine each day. Uh, that, that is something very specific to one person. Uh, I don't think Paul's assuming that we all have digestive problems or something like this. But, nevertheless, there are hints throughout this book that Paul intends the whole church to hear this letter, to benefit from this letter as well. This is one of the clearest biblical explanations that we have in the entire Bible of our understanding of the church, of how the church should be structured of what it is for. Christians have leaned on this letter for millennia to help them in their thinking about their ecclesiology. Another big word. Uh, Ecclesiology, just the word, uh, meaning like your theology of the church. What is the church? What is it for? This is your ecclesiology. And this book helps us form our ecclesiology. And Christians have leaned on this letter for 2,000 years. There's a guy named Polycarp who refers to this letter and the other pastoral epistles by the year 135. This is very early. And then by the end of that second century, this letter as well as the other pastoral epistles are appearing in virtually every biblical canon in every part of the Mediterranean world. It was very quickly accepted as scripture. So we want to 
lean on this letter as well. This is a long introduction, but that's pretty much all we're going to do tonight, introduce this letter. We're just going to get through these first two verses, and by doing so, I hope that we'll leave here tonight with the answer to three questions about this letter. Who is Timothy? Why did Paul write to him? And what are our hopes for 1 Timothy, for this book? So let's do it. Who's Timothy? Paul says in verse 1 and verse 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. We'll swing back around to Paul in just a minute, but who's Timothy? Why would Paul call him a true child in the faith? Keep your finger here in 1 Timothy. Hopefully you found it all right. No, no uh, problem using the table of contents there, but just flip over a couple of books to the left, to the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. If you get to one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you've gone too far. And find Acts chapter 16. Paul has just been in Jerusalem in Acts 15 with the other apostles at a meeting called the Jerusalem Council. This council got together to basically settle whether or not the apostles were cool with God saving Gentiles. Really. Uh, like the Jews of the day didn't have a category for Gentiles, like especially en masse, uh, coming to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so they wanted to settle and figure out what this new thing was that God was doing. And if Gentiles were going to become Christians, if they were going to, going to call Yahweh their God, should they have to follow like the kosher laws and stuff? Spoiler alert, no. This is why we do not. Uh, but after this council, Paul sets off back to the north on what people call a second missionary journey. And verse 1 of chapter 16, we read this. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So around the year 46 or 47 AD, Paul arrives in the city of Lystra, which is in modern-day Turkey, and he finds this young man, Timothy, who is evidently already a Christian. He's identified as a disciple in that first verse of 16, and the Christians in the area already know of him and are speaking well of him. His mother was also a Christian. We learn about her in 2 Timothy. Her name is Eunice, and her mother, Timothy's grandmother's name is Lois. These are godly women of the faith. They were Jews who had also come to faith in Jesus as God's Messiah, as the second person of the Trinity. It's likely that these three folks, Lois, Eunice, and Timothy, they became Christians during Paul's first missionary journey when he came through Lystra the first time, which you can read about in Acts 14. Brief aside here. Don't ever underestimate the power of a godly mother. Seriously. Like, moms... Just like Eunice, just like Lois, keep teaching your children the scriptures. Teach them the things of God. Teach them what you are learning even, what you are struggling through. Of course, this applies to fathers as well, perhaps even more. 
But Timothy's dad evidently is not in the picture. He's a Greek. We don't know anything about him other than what is mentioned here. He evidently never came to a place of understanding and worshiping Jesus as his God. But there is just something powerful about the maternal influence of a child. It was true for me, for my own mother, who did all that she could to teach me and my sisters the scriptures to give us songs uh, to memorize the scriptures by. I'm sure many of you still remember verses of the Bible by the songs your mother taught you, uh, teaching us the things of God's promises. So thanks, Mom, who is undoubtedly listening now sometime next week on the podcast. Also, if you want another great resource of encouragement here, just Google Christian men and their godly moms. Tim Challies, he's a Canadian blogger, did this series, a 12-part series last spring and summer of 12 men uh, throughout church history and how they were formed and shaped by their godly mothers. Okay, back to Timothy. Paul is evidently encouraged and somewhat impressed by this young man when he arrives in Lystra here. We won't bog down here, but Paul has Timothy get circumcised. Not because Paul is like caving under the pressure of Jews who are saying that if you want to be a person who follows God, then you have to now get circumcised and follow all of these other laws. No, Paul will demand that Titus not get circumcised in that scenario. But because Timothy is already Jewish, Timothy will have some uh, ability to gain access with other Jews. So because he's not circumcised, this will prevent him from gaining an audience with the Jews that Paul will have. So making a strategic move for greater access for more people for Christ, Timothy is circumcised. Uh, It's like a great bonding exercise with his new discipler, Paul, and they go off on their first missionary journey, now on a lifelong relationship of just deep affection. We joke about it, but it's true. Paul will refer to Timothy all over his other letters, including what we went through together two years ago in Philippians 2, where Paul wrote this. He's writing to the church at Philippi, and he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. Paul, who had no biological children of his own, nevertheless has a true, or what he says here in uh, verse 2 of 1 Timothy 1, true, perhaps a more literal translation would be uh, like genuine or legitimate. He's a legitimate son of mine. Someone who Paul has poured his life into so that Timothy might grow, might mature, might even actually, as a son to a father, begin to look like his father Paul, that he might accomplish great things for the Lord. So if this is who Timothy is, why did Paul write to him? If they were traveling so much together, why did they get separated and why did he need to write him a letter? Why did Paul write to him? After the second journey, they set out again together, spending two years in the city of Ephesus in Turkey on a third journey. After this third journey and after spending two years in that place and several other cities, they returned back to Jerusalem where Paul is arrested and he's sent to Rome where he spends some amount of time under house arrest. While imprisoned, Paul writes six other letters. 
well, many, many more than that, but in six of these letters, Timothy is just straight up mentioned in the first verse or two as like the collaborator of the letter, or even, we might even say, like co-author. Paul says to the church at Philippi, Paul and Timothy, basically, we are writing to you. Timothy is sitting next to him as he's writing these letters. After this, we're having to put some pieces together because Luke ends the book of Acts while Paul is imprisoned, but Paul is apparently released. He'll be later arrested again and then executed, but after that release, he and Timothy and another young protege, Titus, set off, and they go to this island of Crete where they share the good news of the kingdom with the people at Crete, and Paul leaves uh, this young man, Titus, there to put things in order and to teach the Christians how, to, how, how the church ought to function. Paul and Timothy leave Titus. They continue on their way towards Macedonia when they check in at the city of Ephesus, where they had spent two years together. Maybe to check in to see if they had gotten his letter, which we call Ephesians. Maybe to make sure that they are growing in maturity and Christ-likeness. But what they find when they get to Ephesus is nothing short of like a minor disaster. False teachers have infiltrated the church. Two of them, named Hymenaeus and Alexander, were evidently teaching something so contrary to the gospel of Christ that Paul says that he handed them over to Satan. That's a doozy. Uh, Stick around for that when we get to the end of chapter 1. But Paul, evidently, we don't know why, he had to keep moving. He had to get to Macedonia. But he couldn't just leave. He couldn't leave without seeing some of these things put into order. So he leaves Timothy. He leaves Timothy, his true child in the faith, the son that looked like the apostolic father, to put things in order. So he moves along and then he later writes this letter to make sure he's doing all right. But now hang on just a second. Like, really, who the heck does Paul think he is? Like, he just gets to walk into a place tell everybody what to think. If you disagree with him on something, he's the final authority and he gets to decide what's right. And if you disagree, he'll hand you over to Satan? Well, yeah. But not because Paul is the final authority, but because Jesus is. Paul says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. The word apostle generally means messenger. That's what it literally translates to. But specifically, it refers to the 11 remaining apostles. And then Judas's replacement, Matthias, and then Paul. There's 13 of them. Paul, formerly Saul, was a well-respected Jewish man who in his zeal was evidently persuaded that people who were worshiping Jesus as the Christ were blasphemers. They were like, they were idolaters. And so in his genuine concern for the right worship of God, he thought what he was doing, God would condone. He decided he was going to start killing Christians. But then evidently, I've got no other explanation for how this would have happened otherwise, The risen Lord Jesus appears on a road to this man, Saul, and tells Saul that not only is he the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, but now Jesus is going to use this man, Saul, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, as well as to Jews and even kings. And so over and over again, 
in this letter and in many other letters, Paul will say that his gospel is not his gospel. His gospel is Jesus' gospel. That is, that gospel and its right doctrine is something that Jesus himself had entrusted to Paul and the other apostles to share and to guard. And in chapter 6, to teach something contrary to the gospel of Paul is to teach something contrary to the very words of Jesus. That's either a very helpful designation for us, that if we read something from Paul, we're reading the words of Jesus. That's really helpful for us, helpful for Timothy, helpful for the Ephesians. Or, on the other hand, Paul could be like this extremely arrogant, he's got this overinflated view of himself, and he just gets to tyrannically like bully someone in entire cities into just believing what he believes. So more on that as we go. <laughs> Who the heck does this guy think he is? We're going to work this out over the next many months together, especially in the second half of chapter one. But this is why Paul writes to Timothy. He has genuine concern for the Lord Jesus, for Timothy, and for the Ephesians. Having traveled with Paul for so many years, Timothy is likely, he already knows the things that Paul will likely have written him in this letter. But Paul is encouraging Timothy in this letter towards two things. Towards confronting false teaching and towards equipping the church. And not just so that like everyone will remember Paul really well, like he's hoping that Timothy will go to like little pockets of Christians here and there and he say, hey, remember what our guys Paul said. This is what Paul said. Remember, let's remember Paul. No, Paul couldn't care less about his own reputation. Paul wants Timothy to confront these individuals, to confront this large-scale mass teaching and to equip the church in right teaching because doctrine actually matters. Doctrine, belief, will actually make its way into action. Doctrine is never in a vacuum. What we believe actually will make its way into our lives with very, very real effects and consequences. And Paul knows this. And that's why, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5, and then over and over and over and over and over and over and over again throughout this letter, Paul is so concerned about the very lives of the so-called professing Christians in Ephesus. Verse 5, he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Do the Ephesians' lives actually indicate the transforming power of Christ? Do their lives proclaim the glory and the beauty of Christ to an unbelieving world around them? Like being able to ace a theology exam doesn't matter one bit if it's not changing your affections, if it's not changing your character, if it's not changing your love of your neighbor. But love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith must and can only come from right doctrine. Paul is very concerned with the root we want to make sure that the root is good and then the fruit externally will follow. If the root is bad, if the doctrine is bad, then bad fruit will come and the world will watch. There are things in our beliefs or our actions that if we affirm or deny that would actually leave the gospel of Christ. That would actually cease 
that we would cease to be Christians if we would affirm or deny certain things. And this is why right off the bat in, these, in this verse 2, Paul says that there is grace and mercy and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace. Grace, the incredible and glorious life of joy, the richness of God himself given to people who do not deserve it. And mercy, a sparing of humans from God's wrath against their life of opposition, against people who actually do deserve this wrath. And peace to Timothy and to us. Friendship with God. This word shalom is a theme throughout the entire Bible. The life that God has created us for, to live amongst the very God who created us. Not just amongst him, but with him. Not in fear, not in condemnation, or an overall just lack of knowledge or indifference, but in peace and in friendship. And all this comes not just because of the past events of Jesus' life and death, but because of verse 1, he is also our future hope. When he will come again and like bring the curtain down on this age of sin and opposition against God. When doctrine will then finally and fully always be right because we will see him. And so right off the top, Paul wants to remind Timothy of who this letter is actually about. This letter is going to touch on problems in the church. But it's not about problems in the church. This letter is about Jesus. This letter is not about elders or deacons or women or widows or older men or younger men or false teachers or any of those things. That, those things will come up. But this letter is first and primarily about Jesus and his glory. Paul is concerned about Timothy and this young man and this young church. We're not exactly sure um, how much longer it was after Paul and Timothy had spent those two years in Ephesus. But nevertheless, Paul, Timothy is still relatively young when Paul writes him this letter. So Paul, writing to a young pastor, gives him instructions for this young church. And that's why we're tackling this book. Which brings us to our last question. What are our hopes for First Timothy? That is, okay, we're a young church. The Ephesian church was a young church. But past that, why this book? Why should we like commit many months together to study this book? Well, as we're about to flip the calendar year on our third year as a church, we want to make sure that we are ordering, that we are structuring, that we are highlighting and emphasizing our church the same things in the same ways that the apostles handed down the way that the church should be ordered and structured and the things that they, we ought to be emphasizing and highlighting. Not just our opinions about what we might think is best or most practical, but the way that the apostles sent by Jesus have given, uh, given it to be. Now, of course, 1 Timothy is written in the first century. Can we just admit that? This isn't just some words that fell down from heaven that just, oh, look here, I found something and it's 2018. Uh, let's just read this and apply like it is, uh, like this was written yesterday. There are things that may be cultural to the day and time that find no modern day equivalent. And there are parts of Paul's commands that 
apply, but perhaps might not apply. And of course, the flip side of that is that there are commands of Paul that just flat out fly in the face of our modern day sensibilities. Should we jettison those as well in order to make the gospel, so we think, more accessible to a culture that doesn't understand or believe these things as we do? Should we dismiss Paul in certain areas of his letters because he is an ancient dude who just doesn't have our modern understanding of anthropology and psychology? Like, guys, there are some real doozies in 1 Timothy. Hopefully you read it this week as we prepared for this book. If, if you haven't read this book, just start to finish. I'd encourage you to do that this week. It'll just take you 20 or 30 minutes. It'll be really helpful to get the big picture of this. But if you read it this week or if you're going to read it next week, I guarantee you, maybe not guarantee, most likely, especially if you're reading this book for the very first time in your life, there's going to be a time or two or three or four or 11 or 12 that makes you very uncomfortable, that makes you squirm a little bit, and you're like, I'm not sure if I like that. I really kind of wish that that was not in the Bible. And maybe let's just hope that Paul is some first century guy um, writing in a time and a culture that is totally unlike ours. So surely this doesn't apply to us um, like he was meaning it to for Timothy in Ephesus. Well, stick around. Stick around. I've been reading... As many books as I've had time to uh, in preparation for this letter, there are some really, really difficult things in this book. But I'm hopeful that we can navigate this book feeling like we've actually not just managed to get through this like a minefield, like we got through the entire thing without blowing up or something, or like stepping in a bear trap or something, but that at the end of this, we will actually grow to love this letter and make no apologies for it. That if God does not waste words, then we need this letter for our church and for our lives. So I'm excited about this letter. I'm excited about this letter because a the theme that we'll see over and over and over again is that of the church being the very household of God. The church being the family of God. And I'm hopeful that by next February or March or whenever it is that we finally get through this thing, that we will not only be a more a stronger and a more stable church, but that we will actually love each other much more deeply as a family. Different individual members of the family with different roles and with responsibilities, but each of us as indispensable members of this family, the household of God. And not just for each other's sake, but for the world around us. That as he says in chapter 5, that our good works might be conspicuous. I love that. Noticeable. Not, not for drawing attention to ourselves. Not for praising ourselves or thinking that living godly lives will make us more acceptable before God or something. But like the strong and sturdy prongs of an engagement ring. Those things only exist to support and to hold on to the thing that it's supposed to support and hold on to. Like when was the last time you saw somebody, she just got engaged, like let me see the ring. She shows you the ring, you're like, wow, look at the craftsmanship of those prongs. Those are something else. No one does that. You look at the thing. You look at the diamond. That's the thing that it's supposed to hold on to and support. The prongs are there to highlight 
Hold on to the diamond. And so we, the very household of God, I'm so excited for this. To As we grow in our, the reasons for the way we have structured things the way that we have structured them, the reasons why we love each other and live out our lives in the ways that we do is to be a stronger prong together as the household of God, holding on to, being able to, strong enough to, hold on to, to not lose, and to emphasize the beauty and the wonder of the gospel of Christ. Not to work our way into God's favor, not to work our way into like a good reputation amongst the city so that people in Albuquerque are like, those are really nice people over there at Christ Church or something. No, but as Paul says in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, Clint read earlier for us, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't know why Paul kept writing. He should have just said, so good luck, Timothy. There, there it is. But he evidently had some more things to say. But this is what we want to be true of our church. That Christ in his patience toward us, we sinners, might be an example to those in this city and beyond. Why? For the glory of the king of the ages. The immortal, the invisible, the only God. To him be glory and honor forever. Guys, I'm really pumped about this. It's going to be some hard, hard work for the next many months. I'd encourage us to begin individually. Perhaps if you meet with your discipleship groups and you pray, perhaps even in your gospel communities, that we begin to pray for humility. Begin to pray that we would receive God's word. Even as difficult as some of them, some of these words might be, that we might receive them for our good for our joy, that he actually cares for our good and for our joy and that we grow to learn to love this letter. I can't wait to see what God does in us and through us by his word and through his spirit. Let's pray towards that end. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. You could have left us in the dark. You could have left us as blind men fumbling our way, trying to make sense of what we ought to do trying to make sense of what might be a good uh, organization that we might call the church or something. But you didn't. You gave us your word. You gave us instructions by your apostles that we might know and understand how and what you want from us, your people. Make us humble, we pray. Help us to not only be able to swallow a tough pill, but to love what you are giving us. Help us to love your word. Help us to want it more. Not just in First Timothy. Make us people who starve for it. Who need it as our very daily bread. Teach us, we pray. Make us into a church that is a strong and sturdy prongs on a ring. Able to hold on to, to not lose, and to highlight and emphasize the beauty and the wonder of what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.
hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.